All right, let's, uh, let's pray and let's get back into it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 and continuing uh, in the story that we started two weeks ago. Um, Philip, Simon the sorcerer, if you remember. Okay, we're going to get back into that. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you this morning. Uh, God, I know for a fact I can't do this without you. And uh, Lord, I know that I've spent time in your word. And uh, God, you've shown me a lot of things. But to communicate those things with clarity, I, I don't know how to do that. Um, there's, no, there's no amount of training that would prepare me to properly um, speak eternal words of truth. I just don't have it in my flesh to do that. And so, God, I need you, and I need you to, to meet with us. Uh, Lord, uh, allow your spirit uh, to give, give me liberty where I, I, need, I need liberty. Um, but, Lord, uh, liberate our ears and our minds. Uh, Lord, separate our, our hearts from the world that we might be able to rest in you, and, and we might be able to see what you have for us as individuals today. Um, God, you are so good to us, and you deserve everything. And there are so many things in our lives, even just right now, that, that are seeking to steal our joy and to steal our energy and to steal away your mission. And God, I, I pray it and not be uh, true of our lives, God. We love you, and we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the blood. We're thankful for grace extended to us as a gift, and we're thankful for the capacity to receive it. We love you, and um, you're precious to us, and we want to honor you this morning. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so for those of you who have not been with us uh, over the last several months, we've been in Acts, and Acts is basically just a narrative of how the church launched out into the world, how God used a small group of, of men initially, and then some, some, a greater group of disciples uh, to spread the truth of his word to the Jewish people to start with in Jerusalem. Okay, so the apostles and those early disciples were used to, to spread the truth of Jesus Christ's resurrection and the opportunity to, for salvation to the people in Jerusalem where they lived. And God gave them supernatural gifts to do that. And um, over time there was persecution that was beginning to happen in Jerusalem uh, the religious order was not having it. They were not pleased with the activity of those early disciples. We heard some of that today by, by way of review. Uh, in main service, Sam was preaching for, from Acts as well. And those early disciples were facing a lot of persecution. And so the outcome of that um, over time, over a series of chapters, is the scattering of the church into Judea and into Samaria, right? And, uh, and so there are Christians, uh, Jewish believers who've converted to Christianity, who are living in Judea and in Samaria. And Philip, one of the early deacons of the church, uh, was provoked to go into Samaria to preach the gospel and to help see the church established there. And so what we know is that Philip was the first short-term missionary that we see in, in the entire Bible. And, and so he's an amazing testimony to us of sacrifice and mainly because that the Samaritans were a people that had traditionally been hated by the Jewish people. And so what we see is how Christianity and the, and the message of Jesus Christ sets people free from those bias, those cultural bias, and God is showing those early disciples what it means to love the world the way that he does. And so, so Philip goes to Samaria, 
And uh, he preaches there. And in, in verse 8 of chapter 8, it says that there was great joy in that city. In other words, the message that he brought to them set people free, and they found their joy in Jesus Christ. And, and before we get into the story, that just gives me reason for pause. There's some of us today who maybe don't have joy. You know, some of us who are struggling because God is stealing our joy this morning. Our God is stealing our joy. Satan is stealing our joy this morning. Yeah, that would be no good. That's, a, that's another set of doctrines that we don't adhere to. Satan is stealing our joy this morning, and, and here's the deal. Here's the deal. The only way to get back to that place of joy is to go back to the time in which Christ set you free from your sin. This is, this is the point. This is the point I want to make, is that, is that a lot of us, are, we're struggling with peace. And, and one of our problems is, and this is so, so true for young adults who are growing in their faith, a lot of times we are relying on our spiritual high for, to be Sunday mornings or Bible studies. And we go from moment to moment where we're being fed, and that's where we get our spiritual high. That's where we think we're finding our joy. And the, and the problem is that joy is sustained by living in the salvation that we have every single day. Right? So our joy is being stolen away by the deceiver, but we're giving room for that. We're giving room for that because we don't establish intimacy with Christ from day to day. We don't lean into that salvation, that same salvation that brought the Samaritans so much joy here in verse 8. But we, we run into this guy named uh, Simon. And uh, to make a long story short, Simon was a sorcerer in Samaria who had been regarded as a great man of God. But he had bewitched the people. Look at verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some, uh, out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they, they had regard, because that of a, of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. In other words, there was a culture in Samaria of giving their regard... Okay, giving their honor to this man named Simon, who for a long time had pra practiced witchcraft in Samaria. And the people were bewitched. But what happens is, when Philip comes and he brings the message of Jesus Christ, he sets them free from their idolatrous perspective, and they get saved. They get saved, they get set free. And they begin to see that God himself, that through Jesus Christ, there is a greater power than that of Simon. And when Simon begins to realize that that greater power has been, been bestowed upon Philip, that, that the power of Satan in, in Simon's life has nothing, in, is not, absolutely nothing in comparison to what God gives those who follow him. When he realizes that, he begins to follow Philip. Verse 13 says, Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, we want to be very careful here, because what we are going to see as the story continues is that Simon's profession of faith was completely invalid. It was a false profession, which we know that this is a thing. Many of us have made false professions before, right? A false profession is a thing. 
Simon was deceived, and he deceived other that his faith was his faith was authentic, and it wasn't. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? Because it says that, uh, that that Simon saw the wonders, and that his attention and his focus was on what was being done, not who Jesus was. James two nineteen says, that "Thou believest that there is one God." Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. In other words, to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he came to earth and that he died and rose again is not sufficient for salvation alone. Because even the devils believe that. Even the devils believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See, it's repentance that is necessary for salvation. And that's what was lacking in Simon's life. In other words, there's two things that we see from Simon that proves to us in retrospect, that his salvation was invalid. It was a false profession. The first thing is that that it lacked repentance. It lacked repentance. We don't see a repentance, a turning away from sin from Simon. All right? See, what was happening was that Simon's business was in jeopardy. See, he had made a business of his spirituality. And people were following after him, and he was being honored, and it was his livelihood. His sorcery was his livelihood. And because of that, because of the failure of his business and the bankruptcy of his business, he's looking to find another opportunity. And so we also see that Simon had an ulterior motive. He's looking for a new business venture. He's looking for a new enterprise because Bewitching Inc. had failed. It had gone bankrupt. Okay? And he's looking to put his stock into another movement. He's playing the market, if you will. So he makes a false confession with the intent that he might join the Jesus racket because it looks to be profitable. Does this make sense? And he never truly repents. Now this morning, we're going to, look at, look, we're going to continue on with this story, but there's two things that we're going to look at today, and I want to prepare you in advance. The first thing that we're going to look at is we're going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit a little bit. Okay? We're going to look at the doctrine. And so that's some heavy lifting. And so for, for some of you, you're going to have to really focus when we get into that, okay? But I think it's very crucial. Like, we've talked about this before. Acts is a tricky book. It's a book of transition. And if you don't have the proper perspective on Acts, then it will not unlock the entirety of the New Testament the way that it should. Do you understand? And so we're going to take a moment to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Okay, and hopefully it'll give us some biblical insight that'll profit us in our, in our personal study, okay, and as we grow in our faith. The other thing that we're going to look at is the, the, the genuine nature, how to prove out our own faith as we look at Simon's life, okay? And so we're going we're gonna to be challenged inspirationally to prove out our own faith and so maybe some of the false perspectives that we have in our own life right now, okay? Are you, are you ready for that? I'm going to, can I pray again? I feel like I should do that. I, you know, when, today, when Sam was saying that he's been distracted this week, like, there's a, there's a thing that happens, and I've recognized that it generally happens among the pastors all at once. There is a fog of distraction, and I don't know how to explain it other than, other than that it's a spiritual thing, okay? And, and what Sam was saying, that resonated with me as well. This week has just been difficult. And, uh, and most of this message I had prepared a couple weeks ago thinking that I would get to it. And sometimes when it's not fresh on your plate, um, 
it's hard to get back to the place what God, God, what God was showing me. And it took a long time yesterday to really study until this message burned again in my heart. And so I need God's help. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for help once again. Can we do that? God, I just want to... I just want to honor you with my mind and my heart and my mouth. And, and God, I just pray that you would receive the glory from this time. And I so, I so greatly need you. And, um, and we so greatly need you this morning. And so, Lord, whatever it is that needs to be learned, that I trust that you're going to make sure that that thing, is, that thing gets learned today. It's your job, not mine. It's yours. And so I entrust it to you again. In your son's name, amen. So we want to start uh, this morning. Did everybody get the key point? Because I, I think I already missed it. The first key point of today is true repentance has one motive, and that's to be right in right standing before the living God. And that's the problem with Simon. That's Simon's problem. Okay? And it's what we're going to continue to see as the story unfolds, is that that, that true repentance wasn't there. The right motives weren't there. So true repentance has one motive, and that's to be in right standing before the living God. And, uh, and Simon was clearly motivated by other things. So at this point, Philip is being used mightily, and people are, are believing and being baptized, but there is an unmet need in the congregation of Samaria. There's an unmet need. Okay? See, the Samaritans have not yet been given the gift of the Holy Spirit from God. Now let's, let's just talk for just a second. The Holy Spirit is crucial in the life of believers. It is absolutely necessary. And if we look at the New Testament, what we recognize is the Holy Spirit does two things for us as believers. It does two things. Okay? The first thing it does is it seals us unto God. It seals us unto God. In other words, it allows him to claim, claim ownership over our lives. We are now adopted into his family He's put his Holy Spirit inside of us, and now we belong to him until the day of our redemption. Okay? That is super important to know. Okay? And, and, and it's very important for us to, to recognize that we belong to God, and the Holy Spirit does that in our lives. It seals us. The other thing that it does, and we see this all throughout the Acts, okay, is that it empowers us for the work of God. It is the thing within us that gives us the ability and the capacity to serve the Lord in a supernatural way. And in other words, it allows me to do even what I just prayed. God, I don't know how. I will obey. The outcomes will belong to you because your Holy Spirit wills it so. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit is crucial for empowerment. Now, let's look here at verse 14. There's, there's something that's missing. There's something that's missing. Verse 14 now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then, uh, then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, this is what I'm saying. This gets real tricky if you don't understand basic things about God's Word. If you don't see Acts as a transitional book, this passage, passages like this, get real tricky. So what is happening here? Peter and John, two apostles, okay, we recognize those are both 
Jewish apostles, they were sent for. In other words, Philip, a deacon, says, hey guys, uh, people are getting saved down here, and we need you, and we need you quick. So they were sent for, that they might go to Samaria. And when Peter and John get there, they laid hands on the people, that they might receive the, the one-time entrustment of the Holy Spirit. See, these people in Samaria, these were people who had already repented of their sin, and they had already been baptized. That's what it says. They had repented of their sin, and they had been baptized. They had made a profession of faith. These people were saved. You understand? But they did not yet have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit had not yet indwelled their lives. See, this gets a little bit tricky, so we want to present a basic principle to you right now. And we've discussed this over and over again, but here's our key point too. Acts is a transitionary book, correct? It's a transitionary book. And so there's a, there, we have to understand, and just in summary, what Acts shows us is a few things. First of all, the God of the Bible in Acts, as in Genesis, as in Revelation, is the same God. It's the same God. The same God. And his mission is the same. It's the same mission. But what changes is the people that he emphasizes in the work. Okay, so what we see in Acts is we see a transition in God's focus from just the Jewish people to focusing on the Gentiles. Correct? Am I right? Some of this should be reviewed. Okay, God's emphasis is turning from the Jews because the Jews, are, as, a, as a wholesale, uh, are rejecting Jesus Christ and the message of the Messiah. And we see in Acts a transition away from the Jewish people to a focus on the Gentile people, right? And in that, we see a change in God's operation in doing things. We see a change in his operation. And this is especially true as it re regards baptism, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and gifting. Okay? So let's, let's briefly walk through the bestowing of the Holy Spirit, shall we? Are you prepared for this? Okay. This is, for some of you, this is, like, this is like D2 LFBI level stuff. Okay? But, but I, want you, I want you to pay close attention because it is important to the way that we understand Acts. Now, let's start in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Jewish believers required a water baptism to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what happened. Which was the fulfillment of prophecy towards the Jewish people. See, the water baptism was a similar work to the, to the baptism of John. You guys remember the baptism of John from the Gospels? Before the Messiah had revealed himself, John the Baptist went all around Jerusalem baptizing people in preparation, and it's a repentance baptism, preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, though, the baptism is still, for the Jewish people, is still a, a necessary component for repentance. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Let's not get it twisted. Let's take it for exactly what it says. Can we? Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, 
and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so baptism plays a component into the reception of the Holy Spirit. Okay? But in Acts chapter 8, we find the Holy Spirit is being bestowed upon the Samaritans through the laying on of hands by the apostles. Okay, so let's hold on. Let's, let's, let's make sure we understand this. Did the Samaritans have faith? Yes. Was God's grace upon the Samaritans? Yes. He had extended to them the message of salvation. His grace was upon them. Were they baptized? Yes, they were baptized in a physical baptism, the same way we saw that the Jews were in Acts chapter 2. Had they received the Holy Spirit? No. The gift of the Holy Spirit came by the laying on of hands by the Jewish apostles. So why the change? Is God confused? Why the change? Okay, we need to remember a couple of things, all right? And my gosh, guys, I'm really afraid that I'm going to lose you, okay? Uh, Jordan, is this making sense so far? I mean, you're jumping right into Acts with us, okay? I'm throwing you in the deep end. Is this making sense? Okay, good. I'm checking with you. I'm going to keep checking in with you. You just nod at me. And then if it's not making sense, do this, Okay. So listen, we need to understand something. The Samaritans were not ethnic Jews. They, weren't, they were different than those, those who were receiving Christ when we see, that we see in Acts chapter 2, right? These were not ethnic Jews because they were of a mixed race and were rejected by the Jewish people, right? Also, the Samaritans were, were convinced that the true temple was in Samaria. You guys remember that? John chapter 4, verse 19, is Jesus is with the woman at the well, and the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where, where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. Ye know Ye know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. In other words, it's very, very important to God to tear down the walls between the Samaritans and the Jews that existed because of religion. Okay? It's very important to God, and so he has a strategy. See, this change in the bestowing of the Spirit is God being brilliant? Is this God being absolutely brilliant? He allows the, the Samaritans to accept Christ, but he uses the apostles to, A, this should be in the notes here, establish the authority of the Jewish apostles. In other words, he wants to connect the authority of his work back to the Jewish men that he set apart for the, for the work from the beginning. You know, authority structure is really important to God. And so the laying on of hands in Scripture always is an act of authority. Did you know that? Throughout the entire Bible, it was always men of authority that God had set apart for the work. Prophets and apostles and pastors doing the hands, uh, the work of laying on the hands of, of ordination, okay, reception of the Spirit, setting apart for a work. It was always a work of authority to lay hands on people and God knew that. He had established that. 
And so he, he wants to make sure that the Holy Spirit comes by the means of the apostles because he wants to make sure the authority structure, that the, you know, the Samaritans could no longer hate those Jews because God was using the Jews to do this work in the world. Does that make sense? And so that leads us to the second part. It ensures future unity between the Jews and the Samaritans by requiring the apostles to bestow the gift that unites the entire church. Right? Sam said in first service today, okay, uh, he called it, the, did he call it the transitive property? Is that the actual term for that? Is that the right term? Is that right? Okay. Uh, but he said, he said this thing, okay, so if A plus, A, if, if A equals B and B equals C, then C equals A, correct? Okay, so the idea is this. If I have the Spirit indwelling me and I'm a Jew, then I'm one with Christ by means of his Spirit. And if chance is a Samaritan who gets saved and the Holy Spirit indwells him, and he is one with Christ through the Spirit, then it becomes absolutely necessary that we both recognize that we're one in the Spirit. We are one. Amen? We are one, right? Okay. Are you questioning my salvation? So, so, so God switches it up here, and he does it several times. We're going to look at other instances in Acts where this happens, where he changes his operation, okay, to make sure that he get, gets the teaching done that he wants to get done. It's always very important for God, to under, for, for God to teach us authority and truth. It's very important to him, and he prioritizes it, and he does it through his operation. So God uses the laying on of hands for the bestowing of the Spirit as an official bridge between the faith of the Jewish people and the Gentile nations, particularly Samaria. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. That's not a physical baptism. That's a spiritual baptism in the Holy Spirit. Whether we, were, uh, we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Amen? Okay, so by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, God changes it again. He changes this a little bit. So we find that the Gentiles are accept, accepting the Spirit through simply, simply hearing and believing. Okay, in Acts chapter 10, we see that people are accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay, they're putting their faith in Him. And they're receiving the Spirit through faith. Now, this remains the mode of operation, and there are verse references there for you to look at if, if, if need be, okay? Um, this remains the mode of operation even unto, until today. God gives us the ability, okay, through grace, to believe in Him. And by believing in Him, we attain salvation, and the Holy Spirit indwells us. Okay, now... There's one exception in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. When the church of Ephesus believed on Christ. And we're not, we don't have time to get into the story. We're going to cover it later, aren't we? All right, we're going to cover that later. But, but it was important that Paul lay hands on the Ephesians for the bestowing of the Spirit. And here's the reason why. In Acts chapter 8... Was Paul an apostle yet? Paul wasn't an apostle yet. And so it was important for God to use Paul to do this work. And the Ephesians are Gentiles through and through. They're not like even a mixed breed like the Samaritans are. Okay? 
These are Gentiles through and through. And God wants to use Paul to establish the authority of his apostleship, apostleship, and he lays hands on them for the reception of the Holy Spirit. So he makes one exception. And that exception, Paul is always the exception in Acts, isn't he? Right? The rules for apostleship change because of Paul. Does that make sense? And so it's very, very important for us to understand that God's always up to something. And we don't have to say to ourselves, well, this doesn't make sense, and so I'm just going to gloss over it. I'm just going to pretend like it's not there. Listen to me. Do the work of a Berean. Explore why God's word does and says what it does. Okay? Know it. Okay? Now, in Romans chapter 10, Paul establishes once and for all what what salvation looks like for the Jews and the Gentiles. He does that. He makes it super clear. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ and a turning away from a lordship in the world to a lordship in Christ. It is a repentance. I no longer serve the world. I serve Jesus Christ. He is my God. And I am his child. That is salvation. That is salvation. And we see that from Acts chapter 10 on. Okay, there's the doctrinal heavy lifting. Is that okay? I felt like it was important that we do that. And I, and I pray that for, for many of you, as you study out baptism in Scripture, that you, that you need not be confused anymore. I've had many, many great conversations with people in this ministry who've had a lot of good and valid questions about baptism. Okay? You do not need to be baptized into water to, to be saved. Okay, that is a work. That is a work. And we don't get saved by works. Okay? Romans chapter 10 makes that clear. We are saved through faith. Okay. Next point. Shopping for the Spirit. Some of you guys like to shop. I like to shop. I like shopping, I guess. I don't like malls. I don't like malls. <sighs> Panda Express? No thanks, man. No thanks. Kinlin? If I'm going to eat cheap Chinese food, it's going to be Kinlin. Okay? Just saying. No amens? No? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, do you have a job, Seth? Oh, okay. I, t- I feel like it's cheap. Compared to like, um, I don't know, like, yeah, New Peak King is like crazy. I can't afford that. I can't afford that. That's crazy. Now you guys are all debating your favorite Chinese. You're telling me to focus? Thanks, Lindsay. <laughs> All right. You focus. Okay, verse 18. Now back to Simon. Back to Simon. When Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Saying, give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. That's a letdown. See, what, what should have happened is through seeing Peter and John be used in this way, 
the appropriate response would have been humility to such an extraordinary thing. The proper response would have been humility. And he offers money. See, money, money is the exact opposite thing to humi- humility. Did you know that? See, money represents the efforts and the endeavors of man's work. Money represents our best work. The best we have to offer. It's a, it's a vile thing, money is, in many regards. You know, he didn't ask for the Spirit. He, didn't, he wasn't interested in the indwelling of the Spirit. You guys catch that? He's interested in the power to give the Spirit. You know, he's a lot like Judas, the agent of Satan who put a cash value on spiritual things and selling Christ away when he no longer met his political expectations. Judas was willing to trade Jesus away in a heartbeat. You know, he's a lot like Ananias and Sapphira. Simon is here. You know, we just got in talking about that in last service. He's a lot like Ananias and Sapphira, believing a spiritual reputation could be bought. So here's a key point, and it's a, it's a doozy, so bear with me. By the way, I will, I will mention what do only old people say doozy. Oh. oh, does that scare you? That's a lot. I am doing something new, okay? I am putting the, the PowerPoint on Kaya.live in advance. So if I move through f- too fast, you can have it on your phone right there. Handy, right? I worked at the retreat, so I figured I'd do it. I'd keep doing it. So it, it's available to you. You can go, you can go to the website, and that way, you're, if I'm moving fast, you've got all the, the notes there. But key point number three, and I want you to bear with me. There's some words here that some of you guys might not be familiar with. I don't know. The sin of materialism. The sin of materialism is valuing physical things. Like services and goods, things that bring us pleasure, higher than eternal things. That's what materialism is. It's the worship of stuff. It's the worship of stuff. Okay? Now, the sin of utilitarianism, it's a big, that's a big one. The sin of utilitarianism is valuing utility. In other words, utility just means usefulness. Is valuing utility or usefulness or how will this thing function for me? What can I get out of this? Valuing utility higher than divine authority. In other words, I wonder what I can get out of this. It's the worship of practical living. It's the worship of practical living. Now, both of these things center themselves on the worship of personal happiness. And and the issue is, Simon was a worshiper of utilitarianism. In other words, he wanted to know how he could leverage spiritual things for his own profit and good. That's what he wanted to do. Now, I want to confront you this morning. The issue here is the, the, the bestowing of the Holy Spirit. He wants to buy the gift of being able to give people the Holy Spirit. That's what he wanted to do. Now, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, sometimes we fall into the trap of worshiping utility. And what I mean by that is some of us who, who, 
don't stay in a place of, of intimacy with Jesus Christ. In other words, our lives aren't in, informed by Holy Spirit living. Some of us fall into the trap. This says, if I do these things, then I'll get the things that I want. And we do this in ministry, do you understand? We think that the things of God can be bought. We think that somehow we can barter for better gifts. We think that somehow our best efforts and our work will somehow move us up in our, in our leadership, in our oversight, in our position, in how people regard us. Now remember, Simon was a man of regard, and he wanted to retain that regard. And many of us are looking for re respect. We're respecters of persons. And we desire for people to acknowledge us. And sometimes we're willing to barter in ministry to get there. We want to be seen. We want to make sure we do things in, with perfection. Not perfection like maturity in the Holy Spirit, but perfection in the work of your own hands. And this is why when we fail, we get so worked up. Guys, we can't do anything right. Do you know that? So Simon, Simon was all business. And rather than submitting to the divine authority, he chose striving as though God could be bought off. And some of us function that way day to day in ministry. In other words, you know, okay, let's, 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 let me get even more practical. Hey, God, if I give you this time, will you? I mean, we don't say it like that, but we think that somehow if we read enough in the morning that God's going to give us some sort of special gift throughout the day, like good little children. Here's a lollipop. Now move along. Did you know that, that your best efforts aren't going to garner any more fruit than whatever God just chooses to give you? Like, in fact, you're in danger of impeding his work. See, the, the outcomes in ministry are a direct result of our faith and the liberty of whatever God wants to do in our lives. This is why Jeremiah was a man of God and yet had no fruit. And so the point to you is this. Quit measuring things in terms of quantitative measurements. Get your eyes off physical outcomes and get your eyes on the person of Jesus Christ in humility. Humility comes, by no, uh, comes through knowing him. And when you know him, God, that's, that is fertile ground for use. But some of us are convinced we're in this works-based mentality where, where we think that if we do the right thing, that somehow that's going to produce the right outcomes. And we get in a Simon the Sorcerer type of mentality. And it's super dangerous. And so Simon might look ridiculous here, but some of us practice that in our spirituality from day to day. God, if I, will you? <laughs> I, used to I used to play this game when I was a little kid. Uh, I may have mentioned this before. It was a very superstitious game, but I would get out in the driveway and I'd play, I'd play basketball, right? And I would shoot and I would say things to God like, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Now, granted, I'm like 
eight, nine, ten years old. You, we've all done this. Have we all done this? God, if I make this bucket, what? Like, it doesn't even logically make sense, God. Mm. God just said he's going to give me a hot wife. It was like, it was like, it was like my form of a, of a magic eight ball. Yeah? Weird. We're so weird. That was built into me, in my, into my spirituality. Some, how did that come into being? Where did I learn such a thing? I, I want to I wager with you right now. You know what? That's built into you because you're wicked. Wagering with God is built into you, into your flesh, because you are wicked. God's blessings are not, some, not things to be bartered in some spiritual game. We are beckoned by the blood to be humble. We're beckoned, we're called by the blood of Jesus Christ to humble ourselves before the Savior. We're beckoned, he's calling us in gentleness. But listen to me, we are also obligated by the authority of the Creator to be humble before him. We're obligated to be on our knees. It is not really an option. So while he may be whispering your name and calling to you, at the end of the day, it's not an option. Every knee will bow. And you, it'd be much better for you to do that of a, of a free will volition than to do so by force. Now listen, chapter, or sorry, uh, chapter 8, verse 20 says, But Peter said unto, unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore. See, he's calling him to salvation. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You are lost in your sins. You know, Peter's clear here. Simon, we didn't see who you were before, but now we perceive that you are still lost in your sins. Key point number four. Time always substantiates or proves authentic faith. Time always does. And so real quick, a leadership principle. It's not our job to call someone out on whether or not they're saved. That's not really our job. We don't, you don't know. You don't know. See, this is an invisible tra- transaction made between a person and God. It is a heart issue. And as a leader in ministry, we are called to maybe suspect by the fruit of one's life, I don't know if this person's saved. And so that causes you to pray for them, Right? and have a spiritual perspective on them, I don't know. I'm not sure. But it is not your job to determine whether or not someone is or is not saved. You know why? Because God always proves that thing out anyway. Let God prove that out. I mean, what we see here is that, that Philip and Peter and John, they never questioned Simon's salvation, even though he was a suspect individual. I mean, oh, so the sorcerer gets saved and he's just going to join up? That, that's looking sketch. Like, I don't know about that. Right? They had reasons to maybe not trust that this man had the right intentions. You don't see that in the passage. It wasn't until God allowed him to reveal his own wickedness that, does it, that it gets addressed. So listen, when people show up to your Bible studies, it's right to ask them if they know Christ. 
It's right to ask them how they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is right to do those things. You know what? Sometimes when we get to a place where, where someone's fruit doesn't smell right, but they're saying that they accepted Jesus Christ through faith, trust God with that thing, please. Okay? Let that thing prove itself out the right way. And hopefully it'll, it'll happen in humility, right, and not in pride. And when they get to the end of themselves, they won't be like Simon. They'll actually turn to the Lord and they'll repent. Trust God with that. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. You know, Simon asks for prayer. But what he should have done, he should have been heartbroken. And he should have been praying the publican's prayer. He should have been praying the sinner's prayer right there. He should have been saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. And he doesn't. He doesn't. He says, yeah, uh, pray for me that I don't fall into that wickedness. Because that sounds sucky. I don't, like, I don't like how that sounds. That was his response. Pray for me. When he should have fallen on his face before God and cried out in repentance. And we never see, we never see Simon again. He was looking for a quick fix. Is that you today? See, perhaps you were convinced that you, through some sort of prayer that you prayed at a church camp or in a Sunday school class at one point, that you prayed some sort of prayer and it was like an anecdote to, to access to he heaven. Like somehow you were given the ticket and everything is in good shape, chip, chipped away, done. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Good, I'm good. You got your ticket. You're good. And, and I want to say that a lot of us, a lot of us should be very leery of a cheap profession of faith in our own lives. Because it wasn't cheap. It cost Jesus Christ everything. And salvation is not something to be approached flippantly. It is a matter of humility brokenness and we need to take that serious and if there's some of you this morning who, who recognize in your heart that maybe your profession came cheaply then you need to reckon that right with God today and you need to call upon God in humility for salvation that you might be say, may, uh, set free it is a matter of repentance Others of us today know that we treat ministry cheaply. And we know that we have been bartering with God in ministry. If I, then you will. Right, God? And if you know that that's been your mentality, then it's time to repent of that too. Because God, God, He's not obligated to do anything for you. He sent Jesus Christ. He did everything for you already. You're not in a position where you get to barter out the details of your salvation. No, that's been taken care of. Now it's time to show that you love God by obeying His commands. Not to, not to play some sort of trivial game with Him. So that's fairly sober. Um, I want to leave a little bit of time for prayer. And so we're going to have the worship. We've gone over a little bit. We'll have the worship team come up. I, I, I want you to assess where you're at in your heart right now. Okay? Please listen to me. Listen to me. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid everything that you might have free access to Him. Okay? He did the work. He's presented the gift. He set it on your lap. Do not shun that. Do not cheapen that. And if in any way you know that you've cheapened that, let's deal with that right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. Uh, God, we